evening. Uh, we do have a couple of visitors uh, this evening, first-time visitors, so we want to put a gift in your hand. I know you received a mug already, uh, but there's a book that Pastor Rich uh, has written that we like to get into the hands of all visitors, first-time visitors, or you've, you, have, you haven't been here for a long time. So if you'll just raise your hand up, there's some gentlemen, they'll just bring it to you, that no, not embarrass you or anything. I know there's a couple ladies here. Um, don't know of anyone else, but uh, we just want to make you feel welcome and loved. And um, that book has a little bit of the story of what we do here, a little bit about our church, a little bit about Pastor Rich and his testimony, uh, as well as uh, a great message for you. So um, I think that's all, guys. Thank you so much. Uh, you can take your Bibles with me, please, and open up to the book of Psalms and chapter 4, Psalms chapter 4 this evening. It's where we'll spend our time. As we get the technology working here. So tonight we're going to be, hopefully, Lord willing, going through this entire psalm. Um, and we'll be doing some something a little bit different as we go through it. And I just want to explain that to you as we, as we begin today. So, I don't know if you've noticed this as you've read the Psalms, but there is a word that's repeated throughout the Psalms in different places, and that word is Selah, Selah. Uh, it is somewhat uh, of an unknown meaning. In other words, there are some that uh, think it means one thing and some that think it means another, but a general consensus is that the Selah was a musical interlude. In other words, the psalmist, uh, remember that the psalms were, were put to music. And, uh, and this is a Davidic song, and David being the musician that he was, uh, put this to music, or one of his worship leaders put it to music on, on an instrument, a stringed instrument. And, um, and so what is generally believed is that as the song was sung, uh, like we just did, we just finished singing... Um, that song that we just sang before the throne of God above, there would be a musical interlude and where the singing would stop, but the instruments would continue to play uh, the song. And during that time, it was a time for reflection for those that had just been singing. It was a time for introspection, for um, looking at, at oneself and, and considering uh, how the application of the words that they just sang applied to their own heart. And so tonight, uh, we're going to follow Psalm 4 as it's written. There are two Selahs in Psalm 4. And we won't, we won't uh, prolong that time. But I've asked a couple of our instruments. You're wondering why they're off stage. They're sitting over there. Uh, they're going to be uh, playing our Selahs. We'll only do about a verse of a song. And just to tell you how it's going to work, uh, about a verse of a song uh, as, as we go through the message like we normally would. But then they'll play about a verse of a song for us just to have some time to think. You can use that time to pray. You can use that time to uh, just think about what God is doing in your life or perhaps what the Spirit is saying to you uh, through the message of the psalm. And then I will, I will have a short prayer, and then when I conclude my prayer, then we'll move on with the psalm. There are two Selahs, as I mentioned, so we'll be doing that twice. So um, just so you know, that's uh, what we have in store for us um, this evening. Um, a little bit of information about Psalm 4. Uh, this was a, actually a companion psalm to Psalm 3. Psalm 3 is, is a morning prayer, and uh, we see that in some of the, the language there, especially in verse 5. If you look back in Psalm 3, verse 5, it says, I lay down and slept, I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. Uh, psalm 4, however, is an evening psalm, and that's why we're calling it an evening prayer, resting in the Lord this evening. Uh, all the way at the end of Psalm 4, verse 8, it says, I will both lie down in peace and sleep for you alone, O Lord. Make me dwell in safety. And so these were David's psalms. Uh, these were, as I said, originally set to music. And many believe that these psalms, and I, and I think the uh, context plays out as we'll be referencing this, but um, it was written when David was being pursued by his rebellious son Absalom. So Absalom, remember, led a coup to take over the kingdom. He wanted to be king and was looking to take his own father's life. So he was betrayed. David was betrayed by his own son, and he had to go on the run again. And so 
uh, these, these psalms, three and four, seem to indicate it was about that time in David's life. So it really helps to understand and gives some power to that. And so um, let's get into it. And as we do that, let's uh, open in prayer. Ask the Lord to bless our time. Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, all of it is profitable for every part of our life, Lord. And as we look at this psalm tonight, I pray that it would speak to us. Holy Spirit, would you please teach us? Would you please reveal your truth? Illuminate uh, the scriptures for us, Lord. Please help us to understand it to know how to apply it to our lives, and to allow you to transform us from the inside out. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Psalm 4, and we've divided it up, and uh, Nathaniel was walking around before with the outlines. Um, did everyone get an outline that wanted one? Because there are some more, I think, unless we ran out. Looks like he's got some. If you need one, just put your hand up, even while I'm speaking. And uh, Yeah, Nathaniel has uh, one left, it looks like. Yeah, we, we ran out tonight. So, um, any case... Uh, but you'll be able to follow along on the screens. So number one, our first section here is really just the first verse, and that is this vertical worship. So David begins with this sense of worship, and the verse says, Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. That's a key phrase. We'll look at that in a moment. You have relieved me in my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. This is David's vertical Worship. His request is a familiar one in the Psalms. It's also familiar to those of us that know the Lord. Uh, hear me when I call. How many of you have prayed that prayer before? Lord, will you please hear me? Will you please listen to me? Actually, the word for hear, it, that, that first word in the Psalm, is really a deeper meaning than just, Lord, will you um, recognize the audio of my voice? It's really a deeper meaning. It's not just, hear, my, hear me out. It's actually a cry for God to respond. It's like putting two requests in one. He's not just saying, Lord, hear my words, but Lord, listen to what I'm saying and respond. Do something about it. Answer me. He's crying out to God with the full expectation of an answer. This is a prayer of faith. Uh, this is David's statement right from verse number one that there is still a God in heaven. And despite all of the evil in this world, including the betrayal and attempted murder of his own son against him, there is still a standard of righteousness. Uh, there is still a framework of truth on which he can depend. The call here, it's a literal crying out. It's an aud auditory cry. But now it's not just crying in vain like somebody please help me. It's directed at God. It's specific. It has purpose because he's acknowledging here that there really is a God despite everything around me, despite all the circumstances. And he is really listening to me. And I have full expectation that when I call unto him, there's going to be a response in spite of the circumstances of my life. There's two descriptions of, of God in this verse. First of all, God of my righteousness, as we mentioned before. Uh, this is a Hebrew legal term. It means a defender against false charges. And that's exactly what David was facing uh, in, in the case of Absalom. It's a defender against false charges brought by an accuser. Now, David knew that his righteousness did not come from himself. I think he had an understanding of that. And that's something we need to understand as well. But he understood also that it was the righteousness of God in which he stood. He stood in God's righteousness. He was following after his Lord. You know that uh, David had this accuser, his son. We as New Testament believers also have an accuser. In Revelation 12, verse 10, it says, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast out. Who knows, who was the accuser of the brethren cast down at this point? It was Satan. Now this is a future event. It's not happened yet. That's what makes it so significant. That tells me that standing before God right now, and I don't understand fully how that works because of God's holiness and Satan's utter vile, wretched sinfulness, but for, for in God's plan, 
There is a court where Satan can go and stand. We can read about that in the book of Job when Satan goes before God to accuse Job. He's doing the same thing to you right now. He's accusing you before the Father, but thankfully we have an advocate. 1 John 2, 1, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, maybe we, we could say when anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus Christ, Christian, if you put your faith in him, he is not only your Savior, your Lord, your friend, he is also your legal advocate. What comfort in that. He stands before the Father, daily restoring us, uh, restoring our fellowship with God. If you go on and read verse 2 of 1 John 2, you read about the word propitiation, the um, satisfaction of the Father, not because of anything that we have done, but because he looks at his Son and our right, his righteousness is applied to us. And so he is satisfied because of what his Son has done. Not only is uh, God the God of my righteousness, but he is also the God of my relief. He says in uh, the verse here, back to our text in Psalm 4.1, Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me. You have relieved me in my distress. Uh, the phrase is in an active voice, meaning that David sees the relief he is asking for as already in motion. He's asking for it, but he, he's, he understands God's love for him and his grace is going to be poured out. It's a prayer of full faith in God. Notice that David does not deny that a God follower will face distress. That is a popular but false teaching that once we follow God and we give enough money and we do enough good things, our life is going to be just prosperous all the time. We're going to have healthy bodies all the time and everything's going to be work out exactly the way we think it should. If you've been following Jesus any length of time, you already know that that's false. But David's reiterating here, he, God has relieved him and is relieving him and will relieve him in prosperity? No. Why would you need relief from prosperity? He says, God uh, re, have, re, has relieved me in my distress. He's simply taking his distress to the only one that can do anything about it. Uh, Romans 8, which is such an encouraging chapter of Scripture, verse 26 says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weakness. We've already looked at the advocate of the Son. We also have an advocate of the Spirit, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. Have you been to that position where you know that God needs to intervene, but you don't even know what to ask him because of the pressure and the pain and, and the confusion and the suffering. And, and we cry out to God almost as a child, as a little infant might scream. And it's like, well, why are they crying? Are they hungry? Are they, they just need to be clean? Do they, what, what do they need to be held? Did, are they just tired? It's so interesting how parents will just know that. Right, you, you'll, you'll be maybe holding someone else's little baby and it's like they're crying and the mom will say they're hungry. Like, well, they didn't tell you that verbally. There was no words exchanged, but somehow the parent seems to know that. And God looks at us and says, I know exactly. The spirit looks at us and says, no, I, I know you're crying, but I know exactly what's wrong. And I'm going to bring that before the father for you because I realize that you don't have the ability right now to form those words. He intercedes for us according uh, to the will of God. Notice he also says, have mercy on me. This is a demonstration of his humbleness uh, before God. Only those who stand condemned need mercy. He understood the situation. Remember, he's running from Absalom, his son, who's rebelling against him. But if you go back to the account out of 2 Samuel, and I didn't write down the um, exact passage, so forgive me, but it is in 2 Samuel. Well, if you go back and read the chapters before this, there are several instances where David seems to kind of ignore his, his adult children. He knows there's problems. He knows there's issues. And there was some serious sin that happened between his children. And to be honest with you, he really didn't do very much about it. 
he was not only the king, he was their dad. And he didn't step up. And, and Absalom allowed David's failure to breed bitterness in his heart and led to his corruption and led to him ultimately attempting to overthrow uh, the throne. And so I think as David is looking back at that, perhaps he's realizing the things that he did that helped bring about this issue. And of course, Absalom is totally responsible for his own choices. David is not responsible for those choices, but the way he treated them was not right. And so uh, he recognizes, Lord, I, I need mercy because I know that there are some things I could have done to help prevent this. He finishes with that last phrase, hear my prayer, and it seems to echo how he begins. Hear me when I call and hear my prayer. He's about to call upon the name of the Lord in, in the next verses, and he knows he needs God's blessing. He knows he needs God's help, so he's acknowledging God's greatness, and he's acknowledging his own weakness. It's such an important element when we go before the Lord. And so as we think about our prayer life and we think about wanting to have an effective prayer life, how is your prayer life tonight? Do you wish it was more effective? Psalm 4 is a great pattern. Many of the Psalms are prayers. Uh, but this is a great pattern for us uh, to understand he knows that he needs God's blessing. He acknowledges God's greatness. He acknowledges his own weakness. And he's praying specifically about what he needs. And that's what God's looking for. It's easy to pray these generic kind of, now I lay me down to sleep kind of prayers. God isn't looking for that. If you're a parent, what if your child came in and uh, repeated the same phrase to you every time they talk to you? Um, I, I'm not, it's not that God gets bored. He never does. He has such great love for us. It's just infinite and, and amazing. But he's looking for us to build that relationship with him. And so praying specifically, as David is doing, is so important. Jesus said, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Well, let's move on here to the horizontal warning in verse 2. Uh, we've looked at his worship, vertical worship, and now this horizontal warning as he turns to address those around him. Verse number two. How long, O you sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? How long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? Selah. So there's two rhetorical questions here David is asking. He says, how long will you dishonor me? How long, Absalom, and those that are following him, and he had quite a following, most of the kingdom seemed to be in favor of Absalom. Because if you look back at those passages in 2 Samuel, again, we don't have time to go there. But what Absalom had done is he had set himself, positioned himself at the gate of the city. And when people would come in to talk to the king, he would kind of pull them inside and talk to them about, you know, the king's probably too busy for you, but you know, if I were king, I'd listen to you. It was a total political move on his part. And he did this over and over. And pretty soon people just brought things to Absalom and just avoided David. He became less of a king in their eyes, and Absalom became the one that they loved. And the nation loved him. They, they went after him because of this. And, and so David's question here is really to Absalom, but I think it's really to the nation of Israel. Remember, why was David the king in the first place? It, he was anointed, right, by God. He, God sent Samuel and said, go get that boy out of the fields tending the sheep. He's going to be the king, the next king of Israel, when Saul failed. Oh, he was there by God's decree. So how long will you dishonor me? Are you ever going to stop insulting me? How long will you love and pursue worthless or deceitful things. Chasing after a kingdom that God did not inaugurate. Chasing after a king that God did not anoint. You're not going in the right direction. And it wasn't spoken in pride, I don't believe at all. I think it was simply he understood that it wasn't God's uh, will for the nation. Uh, the literal meaning of the word glory is heavy. That's the literal translation. 
It's used to describe a position of honor. And here it's referring to the position of honor of the king of Israel, David himself. And as we, sp- as we stated, it was the position that God had already ordained. So anyone that would usurp that was really usurping whose authority? God's. God set up that king, and David understood that. And so God had selected David, protected him, guided him through the wilderness, kept him safe from Saul, had defeated his enemies all around. He was the king that God desired. And so as he calls out to them, he's calling out to Absalom, who dishonored his father, dishonored God. And we come to this Selah here. So, as I stated at the beginning, I'd like us just to spend a few moments, not even a few, just a a minute or two, really, just the verse of a song, and then I'll pray. When I close my prayer, then we'll move on through the psalm. But the question that I think is before us, if we look at our own lives, we've seen what Absalom is pursuing, We see that it's worthless, it's deceitful, it's not what God ordained. So the question before us as we apply this to our lives is, what do I love? What do I pursue that is worthless or deceitful? Is there anything in my life that I'm chasing after that God is telling me, I want you to to make a change, I want to redirect you? Are you distracted by things that God is calling you from? Are you pursuing things that take you away from him? I'm going to have our instruments play. I'm just going to ask you, and again, it's just for one verse of a song. Can we bow our heads, close our eyes just for a moment, and just reflect on and ask God, please show us what we need to change tonight. Father, Lord, we thank you for this psalm. We thank you for its words. May we apply it to our lives. Please show us, Lord. Expose our own hearts to ourselves. Help us to look for the ways that we need to change. Help us to look for the pursuits that we need to stop following. Please work in us, Lord. Please show us. Please answer our prayer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Let's move on now to a thoughtful wonder as he considers this in verses 3 and 4. David continues on here. He says, But know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. The Lord will hear when I call to him. And I think he's really still speaking to those same people he was talking to in verse 2. Absalom and others that were following after Uh, him in rebellion against David in rebellion against God he says the Lord has set apart for himself it means to literally treat in a different or special way Uh, the 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 idea of godly here is someone that's loyal someone that's devoted to the Lord and David is saying I stand before you as a man that's following hard after God and I stand loyal and devoted to him He's reminding them that God is on his side. Yes, I have not been a perfect king. That's why I needed mercy. But I stand before you as a man that's following after the Lord. And God is on my side in this. 
We as believers in Christ Jesus can say the same thing. In 1 Peter 2.9, we're reminded that we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. As believers in Christ, we stand in the light. We stand before the Lord. We have his ear. He listens when we cry out to him. The world needs to understand that. What a wonder it is to think about it. God has called you as a believer. He's called you his own special people. Regardless of how other people treat you, regardless of how your family treats you, regardless of how friends come and go in your life, the Father calls you his own special people. He's called you out of darkness. You stand in his marvelous light. David goes on to say, the Lord will hear me when I call to him. I have a connection with God that I know if I begin to call on him, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he's listening to me. The same God that created the universe, that created all of us, that wrote down his word for us, listens to me when I speak. When I prayed a moment ago, the Father was listening. If you prayed a moment ago, the Father was listening to all of us at the same time. What a miraculous, awesome God we serve. David says, I have God's ear. God listens to me, so I'm going to God with my problem. I know you've got this plan with Absalom. You've been scheming and conniving and strategizing against me. But I'm going to God who sees everything anyway. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. 1 Peter 3.12. Do we really believe this? That's the question. Do we really believe that when we pray, the God of heaven leans forward on his throne and listens to our specific prayer? That should change how we pray when we really grasped it. Going back to our psalm now, verse 4, he says, Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. Selah. There's different views on this verse, I found out as I was studying it, in terms of David's audience. Like, who is he talking to when he's saying this? Um, some believe he's still talking to Absalom's followers. The same people he's been talking to for the last two verses that have revolted against him. He's telling them to, to, to calm down, to not sin and stop the revolt. The other view, and I tend to hold to this, is that David here, he's switched, he's pivoted and from three to four. He's now speaking to those that were on his side. And actually, it's 2 Samuel uh, 16. So we're going to go there in a minute. You can start turning there. 2 Samuel 16. We're going to start in verse 5. But I believe... He's really speaking to those that were loyal to him. And he had a, a group. He had some soldiers. He had some of his advisors. He actually had some spies. So if you think the Bible is boring and doesn't have, like, cool stuff in it, there's actually this uh, ring of spies, that a network of spies, really, that he sends back into the kingdom that pass the information from one person to another, get back to him, as far as what Absalom is doing. He actually has a spy embedded within Absalom's court that is advising him the things that will be beneficial ultimately to David without letting Absalom know that they will be beneficial. So it's, it's actually a very interesting uh, uh, passage. But in 2 Samuel um, 16, I wanted to just bring that out, and I, don't, I won't have it up on the slide. So uh, 2 Samuel verse, chapter 16, and we're kind of jumping in here into the middle of this whole account. Oh, got to get out of 1 Samuel. Okay, 2 Samuel 16. I'm going to read verses 5 through 13. Now when David came to Behurim, this is, now this is David fleeing, okay? He's he realizes Absalom, they sounded a trumpet. David says, everybody, we got to go because he's going to come and slaughter us all. 
He, uh, he knew instantly, we have to leave. So he's leaving. Uh, and he's actually, I don't know if it's in our passage, he's barefoot, he's got his head covered, he's in mourning. And the king is wa- walking and he's got his, his um, guard and his people around him. And he's leaving Jerusalem, running for his life. So there was a man, as he's walking away, there was a man from the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera, coming from there. He came out cursing continuously as he came. So remember the house of Saul, it was put aside by God to put David in his place. Remember, Saul, Jonathan, the other sons were killed in battle. Um, and, and God ended Saul's reign and, and pushed his lineage aside in place of David. And this man, being a relative of Saul, never got over that and so held bitterness. And so he comes out and he's cursing. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and his left. This guy has like a death wish. I mean, these are armed soldiers, his personal guard all around him, and he's throwing stones. Also, Shimei said thus when he cursed, Come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man, you rogue. The Lord has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son. So now you are caught in your own evil because you are a bloodthirsty man. Pretty strong, pretty vicious. Verse 9. Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Please, let me go over and take off his head. This is a man that's very loyal to King David. And he is beside himself that this man is treating his king this way. And has every desire in his, head, in his mind, in his heart, to go defend the king. He says, let me just take his head off. It will be easy for me to do. Notice David's response. But the king said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? So let him curse. Because the Lord has said to him, curse David. Who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and all his servants, see how my son who came from my own body, seeks my life. How much more may this Benjamite? Let him alone. Let him curse. For so the Lord has ordered him. It may be that the Lord will look on my affliction and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing this day. What a heart. What a heart of a king. Dethroned, on the run, getting stones thrown and curses flung at him. And he says, maybe God will bless me more because I'm suffering more. Verse 13, and as David and his men went along the road, Shimei went along the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went, threw stones at him and kicked up dust. And we'll we'll end there. We'll stop there for that passage. Those loyal to the king wanted to kill that man. But David says, no, leave him alone. This could be or is God's doing. And I think this is another example of David's heart. You're you're getting like this little window is opening and you're seeing the heart of David in this moment. He had experienced great success. He had experienced uh, amazing protection from God, going all the way back to the lion and the bear and Goliath and just... You just read through David's life. It's it's an amazing study. It's a fascinating life to study. Fascinating biography in Scripture of David. But he had also made some really bad choices in the past. You go back to Bathsheba, is the one everyone thinks of. And he understood that he wasn't innocent of everything. He wasn't any better than this man. If we bring that into a New Testament point of view, as we apply that in a New Testament age, we all stand at the foot of the cross. And that ground is perfectly level. We can't climb up and get higher than anyone else standing at the foot of the cross because we've all done things that nailed Jesus to that cross. 
And as soon as we get done pointing our finger, we then get a mirror position in front of us of the word of God, and we see ourselves for who we really are, and then we realize, I am just as guilty as that person. And I think that's some of David's heart. Of course, the cross wasn't in view yet, but it was that same humble attitude. It says in the verse, be angry. Uh, The King James says, stand in awe. Do not sin. The literal word is tremble or shake. You know, normally we think of anger as as bad and no anger as good. But here we're, it's, it's almost like a paradoxical statement. It seems to indicate that there is a good anger, one that we can experience without sin. But how can we do this? I wasn't going to go here until just recently it came to mind. Over in Mark chapter 3, I don't know if we'll get through this whole psalm tonight. But in Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, and if you've been coming on Sunday mornings, we're covering this in our adult Bible fellowship time. Uh, we're past this now. But Jesus comes in this synagogue. I won't read all the verses for time's sake. But there's a man that's, that has a withered hand. He has a, a crippled hand that's unusable And the the Pharisees are all watching him, if you remember this. They're wondering what he's going to do. So he looks at them, and he says, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. There was no good answer for them, and they knew it. So silence was the best for them. Verse 5, And when he looked around at them with what? Anger. Being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Jesus' anger was because of the hard hearts against God. Righteous anger is never directed at someone because I am offended. It is when I see that God has been offended. That's righteous anger. When we see that God's name is dishonored, it should cause that emotion to swell up inside of us, but not to the point of sin. Righteous anger actually is a sign of biblical repentance. To be angry at sin, to hate sin, the Bible calls it indignation. 2 Corinthians 7.11 This whole passage has the two different types of sorrow. The worldly sorrow, which leads to more sin, but then there's a godly sorrow. And Paul's commending the Corinthians for having the godly sorrow. I'll jump in here towards the top of the verse. What diligence it produced in you, saying that they sorrowed in a godly manner. What clearing of yourselves. Notice, what indignation. You were indignant. Why? Why? Why were the Corinthians indignant? They were indignant about their own sin that he had warned them about in his other letters, specifically 1 Corinthians. We know he wrote others that we don't have in the canon, but their understanding of their sin caused that to stir up inside of them. And they said, oh, I I don't want to do that. I don't want to live that way. This is to see the world and all its sin through the same lens that God looks through. It's to have the energy. You know know that anger can be a gift. It can give us energy to protect. It causes us to stop overanalyzing something and just go do it. It gives us clarity and focus, but it can also so easily lead us into sin. We're called here to anger that does not lead to sin. We see innocence stolen. We see lives ruined, people harmed. And we see our own sin surfacing, bubbling up to the surface again. It should give us some drive, some zeal, some indignation to change course. That's what David is calling out, I think, to Abishai and the others that wanted to go behead this guy. He's saying, I understand your anger, but make sure it's directed in the right way. This is not the kind of anger that is is selfish or self-pitying or lashes out to defend 
against these kind of ridicule that David was experiencing. It's the kind of indignation that just simply hates sin and doesn't want to do it again. Going back to our text here. Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed. This righteous indignation should give way to introspection. To be still, he says. Stillness. It's an attitude of restraint. That's also what separates righteous anger from sinful anger. It's to experience the climax of righteous anger followed by the quiet thoughtfulness of reflection. David is encouraging here meditation. Okay? Not the Eastern religious type of meditation where we empty our minds. That's not biblical. Biblical meditation is the opposite. It's the filling of the mind with truth and digging and focusing and learning and, and just thinking of God's truth over and over and over and over in our minds. There is power in the word of God. There is power in, in scripture to fill our minds with it, to be still. Stop all the conniving and, the, oh, I'm going to get back. I'm going to treat, they shouldn't have treated me that way. I'm going to make sure that they can't do that again. I'm going to, and God says, no, I just want you, I understand your anger. Be still. Be still. Meditate on your bed. Psalm 46.10, also, be still and know that I am God. See, when we let anger uh, corrupt our thinking and push us to try to take matters into our own hands, what are we saying about God? You're, you're not strong enough, Lord. You're not big enough to handle this issue. I have to go make sure this, this is made right. My anger has to come in, and I have to have the resolve, and I have to figure it out, and I have to have the energy to take care of this problem. And God says, but I'm still God. <laughs> Be still. And know that I am God. So we come to our second Selah now. And the question before us, has my anger been righteous anger or sinful anger? Am I willing to be still? I'm going to ask our instruments to play again. Just a verse, just like we did before. And then I'll pray. And then we'll move into our final last couple of points on our outline. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes just for a moment of reflection. Please control us. Please convict us and guide us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's move on here. A sacrifice that is worthy. Verse number five. David continues in his crying out, I believe still to other people, perhaps even to those that were defending him. And he says, offer the sacrifices of righteousness. It's not time to take revenge. It's time to be angry in a righteous way, to meditate, to be still, and then turn toward the Lord. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. If you go back into um, the Pentateuch, the first five books, you have um, written there the Mosaic Law. And you find there, and I've just been reading through there uh, recently, uh, you find there uh, a complex system of sacrifices. And how many have read through that? There's several of you that have. I would encourage you just to go back and read it. I know it's like, it feels kind of like, man, this is dry or whatever. But as you think about it in the light of Christ, it actually starts to come alive. And, and you, you see all these different types of sacrifices, the fellowship offering and the burn offering and the sin offering and, 
and the different feast offerings. And then there was daily offerings, the lamb in the morning and in the evening, and all the incense and the showbread. And you had the, uh, all these things going on, the blood. There was just so much blood. It was very bloody, constantly sprinkled, poured, all kinds of things happening. It was a system of sacrifice, and they were given at different times of the year. They were for the covering of the people's sins so that God could dwell with them. That's what he wanted to do. It's still what he wants to do. That's why Jesus came to dwell with us. The sacrifice of righteousness is an interesting phrase. It's repeated in Psalm 51, which David wrote many years earlier, if you remember, after his sin with uh, Bathsheba, verse 16, For you did not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it to you. You did not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. So the phrase sacrifice of righteousness is not there, but the idea that what God is looking for is brokenness. Brokenness is the most highly regarded quality in God's economy. Brokenness is what he's looking for. Before we can experience any kind of personal revival, before a church can experience spiritual revival, or a city, or a state, or a nation, they must first experience spiritual brokenness. It's just required. He says, offer the sacrifices of righteousness. Put your trust in. In the Lord. See, a broken heart is a trusting heart. Uh, David's men were outnumbered. They're fleeing for their lives. They're getting harassed along the way. But David knew that God would fight for him. He was broken before God. That's why he went up, and we didn't read the passage, but he goes up. He crosses over into the valley and comes up on the Mount of Olives with his head covered barefoot. Crosses over the stream, the Kidron Valley there on his way away from Jerusalem. He was broken before God. He was willing to accept God's will. He said, let that man curse. Let it happen. Let God's will be done. So, because once we are broken before God, once we have sacrificed our pride, which is the sacrifice of righteousness, we've sacrificed our self-centeredness, we're ready to reach up for the Lord's hand like a child reaching for their father's hand because they don't want to become lost in the crowd. They grab hold. That's the trust that God's looking for. He's not looking for you to make another check on your to-do list. He's looking for a broken heart with which he can work. Number five, an antidote for worry. As we conclude this evening, these last three verses. Let's look at verse number six. There are many who say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. Most of the nation of Israel had gone after Absalom. We've, we talked about that already earlier. And so not only are people not showing them good, but we've got individuals coming out and cursing and throwing stones. And so the people around David, I think, are saying, how is this ever going to work out? We're way outnumbered. People have despised us. They're all following after Absalom. How is this going to happen? Who is going to show us any good? We have that same issue in our hearts, don't we, at times? Who's going to show me any good? Because i got a lot of bad going on right now. i got a lot of pressure, a lot of negativity in my life. Worry becomes a huge hindrance. It can become a great hindrance to joy. Worry is a hindrance to purpose, to clarity, to vision and focus, because it focuses us on the circumstances and not on the God of the circumstances. And David was determined to focus on the latter. His prayer here is asking for light. Lord, bring the light of your countenance into the darkness of this worry. I'm surrounded by all this fretting and worrying and anxiety of my soul. Will you please bring some light into that darkness? 
Number six, 24 to 26, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This was the priestly blessing that Aaron was taught and his sons were taught to speak to the people on behalf of God. It was, it was a blessing from the Lord to Israel, and I think by application to us as well. God is the source of spiritual light. We need his countenance to light our lives. You remember when Moses would go up to, to talk with the Lord up on the mountain or in the tent of meeting? What would his face look like when he would come out? Those that remember. It was shining, right? It was almost blinding. It was a reminder to the people that Moses was God's man and they better listen to him. They didn't always do so well at that. But there were times when they did. And Moses' face, it just glowed. Why? Because he had been in the presence of God. And he had put that veil over him so that he could carry on normal conversation. It was just blinding. God says, I want to bring my blinding light into your situation. I want to bring the light of my countenance upon you. Because I see that you're struggling in darkness. David's also acknowledging the source of gladness within him. Verse 7, you have put gladness in my heart more than in the season that their grain and wine increased. Now, again, let's review his circumstances. He has been betrayed by his own son. He's fleeing for his life. He's been mocked and deserted by his own subjects. He is hiding in the wilderness. When was the last time King David had to hide in the wilderness? Yeah, when he ran from King Saul. I think he might have gotten his mind, I'm never going to have to do that again. Whew, glad those days are over. Nope. You're back, you're back where you were. It's like he's, he's gone back to the beginning, hiding in the wilderness like he did as a young man from, from Saul. Yet he stubbornly refuses to take his eyes off the Lord. He's, he's looking at his shepherd with total faith and saying, even in the midst of the deep trial, I'm going to count on the joy of the Lord. You have put gladness in my heart. David, how can that be true? Look at the circumstances. They're crushing in on you. There seems to be no hope. We looked at it in the last verse. People are saying there is no hope. David says, yeah, but I have the joy of the Lord in, in my heart. I have the gladness of God. He realizes that the joy of the Lord is greater joy than any physical blessing. Even greater than any harvest. Greater than any abundance. He says, the joy of and the happiness of circumstance is seasonal. It's seasonal. And we can agree with that. We might not be farmers taking in a crop. But if you think about the ups and downs of life the happenstances of life, the circumstantial happiness of life is seasonal. And maybe you're thinking, well, this has been a really long season of bad circumstance, and maybe that's true for you. The comfort is David also experienced that, yet he says, God has still put gladness in my heart. I'm walking away barefoot with my head covered, running for my life, everything, everyone's against me. I'm being cursed, but I have gladness in my heart. How is this possible? Because he understood that God's joy was greater than any physical circumstance that he was facing. He understood the seasonal nature of life. You think about a harvest of grain or wine or the, the fruit of the vine here, the grape harvest, the olive harvest, the wheat and barley. How long? It, it's celebrated, isn't it? That when there's a big crop, you look at the book of Ruth when the harvest came in and, and Boaz is what? Celebrating and Ruth goes to him after the celebration is over. It was, a, it was a joyful thing. We see that many times in scripture. They celebrate a great harvest. But how long does a big harvest last? A season, right? Because what do they have to start over again? They have to replant, don't they? Some of, those, some of the uh, crop has to be used to reseed the fields. It's seasonal. The joys of this life, the circumstances of this life come and go. One bad drought 
is all it takes to consume the physical harvest. But David says, the gladness of the Lord does not depend on circumstances. I choose to be joyful despite everything else. And he concludes now with verse number 8. I will both lie down in peace and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. It has been a long day for David. Had to run for his life. Had to be cursed. Was physically weary. He was an older man at this time in his life. He wasn't young like he was when he was running around in the mountains from Saul. Hiding in caves and all kinds of adventure. He said, I thought thought these days were behind me. Here I go again. Now he says, I'm going to rest now. Notice the contentment and the peacefulness in this verse. He's not just looking forward to simply lying down, but also sleep. And I understand. Sometimes we lie down, but sleep is not involved. (laughs) If you ever struggle with insomnia, you know this. (laughs) It's like, I did, just couldn't get to sleep last night. I know many of us struggle with that. David says, I'm not just going to lie down. I'm going to sleep. I'm going to rest. I've totally given myself over to God. The only thing I can do is sleep. It's the only right thing for me to do. David, don't you have to run? Don't you have to get down with your, sit down with your guards and, and strategize how you're going to protect yourself? No. Not that there's anything wrong with strategy and planning. We need that. Good leadership has to do with that but David says we've done all that we can do and now it's time to rest now it's time to rest in the Lord Absalom's out there he's coming for me Absalom hadn't been stopped I don't believe at the time of this writing or at least he was reflecting on how it was when that happened by the time he wrote it either way this was his heart in the moment Absalom's out there he's coming for me he wants to kill me people are cursing me I've lost my kingdom, or so it appears. I'm just going to go to sleep anyway because God is my safety. I'm just going to rest in him. Light and gladness and peace and safety. So as we conclude tonight, what would your evening prayer look like? When you go home tonight and it's quiet, what would your evening prayer be like to the Lord? Um, how do you handle, and I'm asking myself these questions when I say this, how do you handle the pressures of life? How about when people abandon you or betray you? Many of you, I'm sure, have struggled and suffered through betrayal, abandonment. David went through all of these and more, yet he was still able to say, I will lie down and sleep. God will protect me. And if calamity comes, I'm just going to go and be with him anyway. His heart was set after God. Can we say that tonight? Christian, believer tonight, or if you're watching online or here in the room, how is your faith doing? These kind of psalms are kind of like a faith check. It's important that we learn to follow David's formula for peace and safety. It's time to trust in the Lord If you've been struggling, lay it in his hands. He's still God. He's still on his throne. If you haven't put your faith and trust in Jesus yet, you don't have an eternal home waiting in heaven. Despite all the good things you may have done, God says, I'm not looking at any good works when I decide who comes into heaven's eternal life, heaven's eternal glory. That is reserved for those that have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. And so our plea for you tonight, if you're here or watching, and you have not trusted in Jesus, would you consider your eternal destiny tonight? Would you consider a God that gives hope, that rivals our circumstances, a God that gives joy in the face of, of calamity that's the God that we serve and we enter into relationship with him through Jesus Christ Jesus said I am the way the truth and the life no man comes to the father no man gets into the same relationship that David has here in Psalm 4 
but by me. Our final verse tonight, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved, or could I say you will, will be saved if you're not yet? And that is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We can't boast in anything but Jesus. So our call to you tonight, Christian, are you walking with the Lord the way you should be? Are you trusting in him despite circumstances? If you're not a believer, would you consider believing in the Lord Jesus Christ tonight? Let's close our eyes and pray just as we conclude. Father, we thank you so much for your word. I thank you, Lord, so much for the truth that it shares with us. Father, I pray that you would help us as believers, Lord, to learn to put our faith and trust in you. Would you please, Lord, help us to love you with all of our hearts? Would you help us to stop allowing the circumstances of life to control our emotions and control our actions? But instead, Lord, let us turn to you the way David did. And let our evening prayer, our morning prayer, our noontime prayer be a prayer of faith, trusting in you, Lord, despite the circumstances that we're facing. 